Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to a very special episode of the Lead from the Heart podcast. Until now, we've never had a guest join us for a second time, but today it's an honor for me to welcome back Gallup's Chief Scientist for Workplace Research, Dr. Jim Harder. His new book, It's the Manager, was published just a few days ago and instantaneously became a number one bestseller. Co-written with Gallup CEO Jim Clifton, It's the Manager is packed with 52 discoveries from Gallup's largest study ever on the future of work. And there are so many new and invaluable leadership insights in this book, I just couldn't wait to have the discussion with Jim that you're about to hear. These days, it's virtually impossible to read a management or a business article in a newspaper or magazine without seeing the words, according to Gallup Research. And you should know that the studies to which so many authors are referring in articles like these have almost always been initiated and managed by Jim Harder. For 30 years, he's led Gallup's influential and ongoing employee engagement study. In fact, he's led more than a thousand workplace effectiveness studies, not to mention his firm's global human well-being research that we're also going to dig into a little today. As the title of Jim's new book implies, Gallup has discovered that an astounding 70% of the variance in team engagement is determined solely by the manager. And the management practices known to drive the greatest performance and engagement today prove to be profoundly different from how most people actually manage. I'm especially honored to call Jim a friend. Articles in which I've relied upon his research and insights over the years have been some of my most read around the world, whether they were published on LinkedIn or in Fast Company. And his episode on Lead from the Heart podcast last summer currently ranks as the second most listened to episode of all. And now to discuss his new book, It's the Manager, I am profoundly honored to welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Jim Harder. Thanks, Mark. Great to be with you again. Well, I'm thrilled to have you as always, and congratulations on your book. And at the beginning of it, you say that the world has kept changing, but at least for the past 30 years, our leadership practices have been stuck in time. So let's start there. Tell us why you believe our traditional methods for managing people are no longer aligned to help people want to work and experience their lives. Well, I think management has gotten by with command and control type management for a lot of years. Even though it's not the most efficient way to develop people, it's led to some advancements, a lot of advancements. You look around at all the architecture that's been built and the infrastructure, and but people kind of accepted work being a job in the past. And even though the best jobs have always been ones where people are connected to a broader purpose and have had a chance to develop. So there've been pockets, you know, where there's been good leadership. And we've certainly seen this in a number of companies where they've had great leadership and great management. But now that the newer workforce really expects something different, they don't expect command and control type environment. They expect a more collaborative one because, you know, one of the things, Mark, right now that we've learned and that we, you know, reference in the book quite a bit is that work and life are now blended more than they ever have been before. And when work and life are blended due to technology and all the advancements that have been made, there are trade-offs that people expect from that. And I think that's forcing leaders to rethink their culture, to move more from a culture of boss to a culture of coach, from boss to coach. So how do you explain the evolution? In other words, I've heard from many people who aren't in the younger generations, the Gen Z and millennials, who say, you know what, we never wanted to be managed in a command and control style either. Right. So what makes them different? 
Well, I think they are much more aware of what work can be now than in the past. It's more complex now as well. We've got more remote working. We've got more matrixed organizations. Digitization is all over the place. We've got mobile technology we're carrying with us all the time. There's more gig work. The most sought after benefit is flexibility. I think there's just a greater awareness now for what work can be. And so there's a greater expectation. And I think the big evolution is that trade-off I referred to a little bit ago that work and life is naturally more blended. And so there is that trade-off that people expect. If I'm expecting to work in all sorts of different hours of the day, I should be allowed some flexibility. I'm going to need a coach to help me because I have to kind of self-manage in many ways. So I think there's been an overall evolution in how people expect work to be because there's greater knowledge now. Science has taught us a lot about what work can be and should be. The problem is the practice of management hasn't really kept up with that. So how do you explain the fact that so few organizations have adapted and evolved? I mean, why have we stuck with these old ways? Well, I think organizations have gotten by. It takes some real intentionality to get a culture right and to fit with a culture of coaching and development with a clear purpose and a a clear brand and then hiring and developing great managers that support that. So it takes some intentionality. And and I think this newer workforce, given the changes in the economy and the low unemployment, they have more choice and uh, organizations have to adapt or they're going to lose their stars. I love the word intentionality, but it seems to me, and you sort of embedded this in your answer, that it's really bottom-up that's forcing this rather than a top-down orientation of, hey, from a senior leadership standpoint, we've really got to improve our culture and the way we manage and lead. Do you agree? Yeah, it is driven by the workforce because the uh, hiring people is much more competitive than it's been in the recent, I'd say even in the recent decade. Turnover rates have gone up a bit Mm. and it's difficult for organizations to attract great individual contributors and great managers. And so to find those stars, they've got to build a culture that's more authentic. And as I talk to leaders, I think they're coming to that awareness. They know that they need to do something about their culture because what happens inside an organization now extends outside of the organization pretty quickly with social media and all the different communication that's going on. So you can't really hide behind a brand anymore. So you anticipated my next question. Where are we on the continuum? If you look at the the majority of the largest organizations in this country and across the world, for that matter, where are we in terms of the change? 20% of relative to where we need to be, 50% of where we need to be, Are we almost there? When I look at the best-run organizations, they're operating at about 70% efficiency when I think of it from a human capital, human motivation standpoint, you know, whether they're getting the most out of the people part of their business. About 70% or more efficiency, and that's our engagement metric I'm referred to, which is a really high bar, but it has really high relationships to all the outcomes that organizations want to get done. So most organizations now say they want to be agile. So to be at 70% efficiency, you've got a much greater chance of being agile. Right now in the U.S., we're at about 34% efficiency overall, but that's gone up from you know, 26% in the past. And so there has been some movement up, not as fast as either of us would like to see or our business leaders would like to see, mm-hmm. globally 15%. So there's a lot of room to grow, but we know when organizations do grow, it has all kinds of benefits to them. They can respond to customer and market demands much more quickly and have all their teams kind of moving in the same direction. 
organization. Do you think, though, that most organizations are fully committed to this? They see where they are in the in this point in history and are saying, we've got to fundamentally change how we manage and lead? Or do you think that we're still in this stage of, you know, we probably will need to change at some point in time, but maybe don't need to make quite the commitment today? Yeah, I sense that the urgency is is higher than I've ever sensed it in the past. And I think part of that has to do with the demands of the new workforce and everybody's kind of seeing that. Even those that might have kind of a soft engagement metric where their numbers look higher than reality, mm-hmm. um, they notice, you know, when they're trying to get things done, they can't get them done efficiently. They're noticing their stars are leaving. It's difficult to respond to those customer and market demands that are out there and come at them pretty quickly. So I've seen even, you know, organizations come to us who've been using kind of a soft engagement metric that shows a high score, but they know inherently their culture isn't right. I think there are going to be some organizations that'll be slower to move in this direction we're talking about, but we've got folks out there talking to to CHROs on a regular basis, and we're hearing a big need for manager development, among other things. Culture change, manager and leader development are two of the top issues they note. How do you explain that shift? It seems like a consciousness shift that even since the last time we spoke last August, that I think you sound a little bit more encouraged. I do. I think part of it has to do, though, with it's being forced in some way because of, again, the expectations of the newer workforce. And I think people are coming to greater awareness that they have to take that seriously to be competitive and to bring the right people into their organization. And so, you know, there's been overall some decline in global productivity growth over the decades. The good news is there have been some great advances and we know what organizations should be working on. The next step, though, is how, right? And so that's what we try to do in this book is give people some concrete, actionable steps in terms of how they might change a culture, how they might go about doing that. And so I think we have more knowledge now about how to do it, but we also, I think, have some practical steps that organizations can take to get there. Do you think that this is going to be a continued evolution or you think we're reaching a tipping point where most organizations are saying we are going to have to adapt? I think it's somewhere in between there. You know, I think at some level to survive, organizations are going to have to move in the direction of hiring and developing great managers because they're the really the glue that keeps everything together and, and they're the conduits to the local teams understanding what they need to do. I see a gradual shift, but I'm hoping that our book will serve to create even more awareness, better yet, some actionable information that makes it seem easier than people might have thought to get to change over time. There's a bit of a paradox in something that you just said, which is that, you know, your book is filled with data that shows that economic productivity you just mentioned, at least for the past three decades, has sort of either standstill or declined. And yet we have the stock market and company valuations have reached all-time highs. So do you think that organizations, sort of a two-part question, do you think companies realize that their productivity is lower than what it could be? And do you think they see the full upside of, to the point of your book, it's the manager? If organizations really made sure that everyone had a great manager, do you think that most companies and most leaders understand the upside? Well, those that do certainly will have a competitive advantage. I think that leaders do understand that stock market fluctuations are somewhat fleeting and the part of their organization that they can control is sustained business, growth, earnings. But with lower unemployment, which has kind of come with these times we're referring to, Mm -hmm. the other consequence is it's difficult to attract stars. 
and uh, every organization needs star employees if they want to be successful they need, they need to keep them and to attract and keep stars one of the criteria that individuals are looking for in organizations they join is do they have a chance to do what they do best to develop and they also are savvy enough to know they need to have a great manager so that's one important criteria that they're going to kind of look for and if you don't live up to that you know they get onboarded and the culture isn't what it was promised they'll be pretty quick to leave so the employment brand is really reflected in your real culture because it goes externally so quickly and people are savvy to pick up on that much more quickly than you know in the past we kind of settled for if you had a great work environment it was a bonus but you know you put in your time you do your job you go home work and life are separated it's just different now and do i think that most leaders will catch on to this i think it's going to be probably more gradual but I think we are getting to a point where people are going to realize that it's a big competitive advantage. Some organizations are already way ahead of the game and have figured that out over the last few decades, but they're, um, they're not enough. It makes me think you know, that companies might be willing to sort of those companies that you just alluded to. Would they be wise to say if you come to work here, you're guaranteed a great manager? In other words, rather than promote the broader company culture, would they be smart to say whatever team you're on, you're going to have a great manager? I think they should. For those that have worked on it and have gotten there, I think they should advertise that because they can live up to it. And part of that has to do with the steps you need to take to get to that kind of a culture. And it's not something that happens overnight, but there are definitely steps that organizations can take to move in the direction of an increasing number of great managers in their organization. You know, many of these organizations that have changed their culture from in the teens of engagement up above 70 percent have done it, you know, over five to 10 years of effort, focused effort, where it's part of what the CEO expects the organization to be represented as, you know, one that values people and the development of people. And they see the big picture of that. Is it a five-year process? So in other words, if I commit to this, am I wise to go into this thinking, hey, we're not going to turn this ship overnight and it'll probably take us at least five years to get where we need to get to? Well, it's going to vary depending on the organization a bit. So that's kind of a generality that I threw out there. But many organizations have made substantial changes in five years. But you can increase the speed with which you achieve growth with some kind of strategic, different strategic approaches you take. If you measure more often and put the right development programs in for managers and change you know, what you expect the role of manager to be, you can move the numbers even more quickly than that five-year kind of window. So it just depends on how much you want to put behind it. So there are, there are options in terms of how you move. I'm just, I kind of threw out the averages of what we've seen, but I've seen organizations turn a culture in quicker time than that. Well, I think it's helpful to understand that it's a longer process yeah. so that you don't get discouraged after six months and you're not seeing any change. That's not to say that you're not moving the needle. Right. And it kind of depends on what your starting point is as well. Right. You know, you might have a starting point that's, you know, above average, which many of these organizations did because they're already doing a lot of the right things. They just needed to focus their efforts on some concrete elements that will get them there. So fortunately, we've done a lot of that work and we know, you know, what some of the elements are that organizations should focus on to get the most movement or to get the most traction quickly. So there are accelerators that uh, fortunately the research has taught us that we can help organizations implement to move those numbers even faster. So my audience is going to ask, what are those accelerators? What are the top accelerators? If I'm super ambitious, <laughs> what do I need to know? Yeah, I would list off at least five different accelerators. The first one is a more foundational where it's important to first clarify the job demands of your managers. You've got to change your demands from being boss to coach. 
and all the elements that go into being a coach. So you've got to first say, here's what a manager is to us. Here's what we value in a manager. So that's the first step. The second one is you've got to build an outstanding base of learning curriculum and ongoing learning curriculum that's strengths-based. That's a big accelerator. If you have a strengths-based approach where you get to know each person based on their strengths, you can accelerate growth faster than you could otherwise because you build some efficiency in there for your managers and their employees over time to get to know one another. It's sort of a shortcut to development. So that's a big one is, is that learning curriculum. So no matter who you got in the manager role now, they can all get better. Opportunities to get better if you put the right base curriculum and then ongoing combined, in some cases in person, in some cases online modules. And we've had a chance to work out many of those as well for organizations. Third, it's important to reward outstanding individual contributors and help them know they can have high status without becoming a manager. That's a cultural shift that's really important because if everybody thinks their only role to status and promotion is to become a manager, then you're working a big uphill battle. And you're going to end up with a lot of people in managerial positions that probably don't love managing people and their people that they're managing probably don't love them managing them. Mm-hmm. And so that's pretty important. The fourth one is give people team experiences and keep track of who works best with people, who actually leads to the development of other people when they're working on teams. So those actual, we call it game film, but if you can see people in action, get some game film on them in action, that'll give you some indications as well in terms of who has the best potential to manage. And then the fifth one is use science to select people into these managerial roles based on their innate tendencies to manage people. So you you can make every next manager decision the right one by utilizing science and the traits that it takes to be a successful manager. That's all been learned and and can be applied pretty quickly. So those are five of them. I think all that kind of starts though with the CEO and executive team and the board saying, this is the kind of culture we want to create and why, so people know why and know that it's not going to go away. It's not about having an engagement program per se, as much as it is building those engagement elements into how you develop people over time and their expectations. Really well said. I'm very glad I asked the question. I want to dig into the title of your book. It's called It's the Manager. And clearly that implies that the fastest way to improving engagement and everything you just described is to ensure that every worker has this great boss. So tell us how you prove that 70% of the variance in team engagement is determined solely by the manager. Yeah, so we have this large database now of 40 million employees who've um, completed the engagement questions. We have our kind of standardized engagement questions. We call it the Q12, in addition to a lot of other questions we've asked them. And that means we've got about 4 million teams in our database. What we've found over time is that the variance within organizations across teams is substantial. In fact, most organizations have as much as 70% of the spread within their company as we see across all teams in our database. What that means is you've got in most organizations we study for the first time a massive spread from top to bottom in terms of how engaged their employees are. That indicates there's something happening at a local level that explains that widespread. There's even widespread when we ask people about their senior leadership. So even though you might think, well, it's the same senior leadership, right? Well, people perceive them very differently across all these teams. Why is that? Well, a lot of it has to do with how local leadership interprets and represents 
upper leadership at that local level. So the reputation of a leader is really dependent on the people they manage directly, which is then dependent on the people they manage directly. So it's it's really a cascade effect. Now, what we did scientifically is we looked at that variation and we isolated many different variables. And for one, we looked at the perceptions of the supervisor or manager of the team that they manage. We measured the manager's own engagement. And we also measured the innate tendencies of the manager, you know, some of those innate characteristics, like how they motivate people, how they set goals, how they influence others to act, how they build committed teams, and how they take kind of an analytical approach to their decision-making. So those things combined, we're able to account for at least 70%. That's actually conservative of, of that spread across the teams. If you're looking for a silver bullet, I guess that'd be the one I would point to is that if you get that manager role right, who you pick for that role and how you develop them, both about 50-50, you've set yourself up for a lot of success because everything you're trying to get done is going to get done a lot more efficiently. And those managers who are developing themselves are going to see the big picture and they're going to connect with other managers and connect their team to other teams. So they're working together. Do you encourage your organizations or the companies that you work with to measure employee engagement all the way down to the individual manager level? I do. And the main reason is uh, back to that earlier point that that's where the variance is at and how you hold people accountable for people management. People need their local data to know how well they're doing. And if you assume that, you know, you just do like a regional cut or something and you don't Mm -hmm. do it down to the team level, you're kind of making the assumption that all those managers within that region are managing people in the same way. And they probably aren't. And so you've got to expose that variation and then teach people what to do about it. How often do you encourage organizations to measure that for the specific purpose of handing that feedback back to the managers? The fastest growth organizations are doing it twice a year. We do that right here at Gallup. So every six months we're measuring and using those data to learn something. We add additional questions on as well, but I would argue, you know, the measurement's one component of it. You've got to get that right. I mean, it's got to be a high bar type metric, Mm -hmm. but beyond the measurement, I wouldn't think of it as a program. I would think of it as a continuous process where what you are measuring is blended into your performance management approach. It's blended into your learning and development curriculum. It's a part of how people do their work. But the speed of growth happens faster every six-month semi-annual measurement. We've seen plenty of people do it annually and still have all the right systems around it so that people can make it more continuous and still get by with an annual measurement. I wouldn't stretch it out further than that, though. Well, but the idea then is to give the feedback to the manager and give them coaching if their scores are low or if they've got particularly high turnover or unhappy people. How many swipes do you give a manager before you say, maybe this isn't what you're supposed to be doing? Oh, yeah, I would I would give them at least two, probably at least three measurements. If their scores are continuous, con- you've given them all the support mechanisms you can, all the, the learning and development. They know that it's part of their accountability as a manager. They may just be an exceptional individual contributor. Mm-hmm. Exactly where I'm going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you, you've got to have a culture where that's okay, you know, uh, where you can be an exceptional individual contributor and have high status, in some cases even higher pay. I went back and looked at your book again over the weekend, and one of the things that stood out is the assertion that the purpose of business has to include maximizing human potential. So Mm -hmm. tell me how that relates to who we select as managers. Well, it has an enormous impact because they have to think of their job as doing that. They have to think one of their job responsibilities is 
to maximize the people they manage directly and to develop them, to coach them into high levels of development. For one, it makes your organization better. For another, it makes them better. And another point would be that it aligns with the demands of the new workforce. They expect to have a job where they're developing. Does that argue that maybe we might want to have people in management roles who are a little bit longer in the tooth, who know themselves better, who might have the greater capacity to maximize other people's potential? Yeah, we're all going to vary on a continuum of, you know, what our natural kind of innate abilities to manage others are. But a base for anyone along that continuum is to first know themselves and their strengths. Then they can manage within the context of who they are. And there's a lot of ways to get to the same outcomes, but you're going to get there pretty inefficiently if you don't start with who you are individually, your own strengths. And then to know it makes it a lot easier than to talk to the other people about their strengths because you can be really authentic about who you are. I think that's the case for senior leadership as well. If you want to build a strengths-based culture, you better start with you know senior leadership being pretty transparent about their own strengths and what they've learned. That makes it just so much easier for everybody to endorse the approach and to increase the speed of culture change, really. So how do you encourage a young manager, somebody who's, you know, maybe just a few years out of college, how do you inspire them to get to know themselves so that they become a valuable resource? Well, I think there are a couple different avenues I would go down. One is we have really good measurement now. Science is there for people to, we've got a tool called Clifton Strengths mm-hmm. that they can learn their own individual strengths in a reliable way, reliable, valid way, and then have some solid language to put around themselves and maybe a lot of things they've already thought about but haven't put language around it. That's one. And also to think about what you want to get done. What are your aspirations? What are your goals? And how do they align with those strengths? And how do they align with what the organization is trying to get done? What kind of purpose do you connect your work to? So to think kind of longer term, I think, you know, one of the disheartening statistics to me is that of people who change jobs, almost all of them change companies right now. Mm -hmm. Like 91% of people who change jobs change companies. That's, that's really unfortunate because it means that people aren't seeing where they can head in the organization. They're seeing their only way for advancement psychologically is to go somewhere else. And we've learned in our research also that you never get to the point where you can say you have an opportunity, strongly agree, you have an opportunity to do what you do best every day at work if you keep changing companies. It's uh, just very difficult. You don't build up enough repetition and, you know, you don't get to know your coworkers enough to leverage your own strengths in the right kind of way. So those are some things I'd be thinking about. Any book that you've ever read in your life that sort of opened you up to who you are and who you were meant to be that you might recommend? I know this sort of throws a, a quick one at you, but just thinking about young managers needing to be coaches and needing to be able to help other people grow and develop. And if you haven't done that for yourself, you're kind of at a disadvantage. Yeah. I mean, Gallup, we've produced a whole series of books on strengths that are both individual level and are resources that you can think about in terms of an overall organization and a culture. Strengths-based leadership is one that was written by Tom Rath and Barry Conchie. And what, what it helped people with, I think, is that you can approach leadership in a lot of different ways and get to the same kind of leadership outcomes if you start with the base of knowing who you are as opposed to trying to follow some kind of cookie cutter approach. Perfect. Thank you.
So in your book, you write that the typical day for an engaged employee looks very different than the typical day for an actively disengaged worker, which makes sense. And one of the underlying reasons, though, is that you say that engaged employees have an abundance of positive experiences at work. And I've not seen Gallup make this connection before. And this idea that human beings are hardwired to thrive on positive emotions is really at the core of this podcast. So tell us about this. Tell us specifically what managerial practices leaders might want to double down on to ensure that their people routinely experience these emotions and remain engaged. So we conducted a uh, research study a few years ago where we called a day reconstruction study where we asked people to relive their previous workday. And we asked them what they did and how much time they spent doing it and then how they felt those days. And before we conducted the study, we had measured how engaged each worker was. And what we found is that engaged workers use their strengths four times as much as doing what they don't do well. So it was a ratio of four to one, using their strengths versus doing what they don't do too well. And they also reported that they were so absorbed in their work that the time passed quickly. Now, this is parallel to the work that has been done by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi on flow, that people who are engaged are in a high flow state. And to be in that state, they need to be challenged, but they also need to be using their strengths and at a four to one ratio. So it doesn't mean people can just avoid doing what they don't want to do. We all have things like that. But the actively disengaged workers surprised me. They're at a ratio of one to one using their strengths and doing what they don't do well. I guess the point from that research I would make is it's not a balancing act. It's not about saying, well, we've got to balance out negative feedback and weaknesses with strengths. It's really, you've got to think conscientiously about how you put people in positions where they're continuously doing what they do best. And that's one kind of piece of research that I think speaks to your point. Well, what about the managerial behaviors, though? So it's not just the difference between somebody's day of being able to use their strengths all day versus not isn't the only reason that people are fully engaged or actively disengaged. Right. And so you're sort of implying your book that people are just, they're just happier. You know, they're enjoying their work. Tell me about the environment around that managers create that give people these experience of frequent positive emotions. Yeah, they start with something pretty basic. They help the individual know what their role is on the team and they talk with them about it. So you might think of it as collaborative goal setting. This has been found for decades that it boosts positive attitudes toward work. If you start with just involving someone in setting their own goals, that's real basic. And you get them what they need to do their work. When they do good work, you give them recognition for it. Again, these sound basic, but they're overlooked by most managers. And they build an environment where the individual genuinely feels cared about and where they have a chance to develop. So they help them think about their future and with their involvement, of course. We outline in the book five conversations that managers have that really kind of set the stage for these ongoing coaching conversations that everybody's trying to get to, really. I think that's the big hurdle people are trying to get to is how do you get managers to have these ongoing conversations and then what gain do you get from it? We um, mapped out five and it starts and ends with kind of what I think of as some slowdown type conversations where you're kind of taking a step back. You're not going through the everyday work. But you're taking a step back and thinking with the individual strategically about their future. And that starts with role and relationship orientation. Then you have a lot of kind of quick connect type conversations where you've got quick connects, check-ins, 
where you're kind of in the moment with the individual and seeing if there's anything they need help with, getting some feedback on what they've experienced in their work. Then you have developmental conversations that can be very short and life-changing or could be a little bit longer depending on the feedback that you're giving them. And if you've built trust with all these things I've been talking about, you've already built some trust, you can have critical conversations and people will accept it because they know you're in it for their best interest. Then at the end, you've got the other slowdown conversation, which is we call it a semi-annual review, not an annual review. And that's going to have a lot more to do with the future and the individual's development because at that point, the individual already knows how well they're doing. They know how they're performing because they've had all the other conversations So those are the kinds of things that we try to teach managers and leaders so that they can know strategically what the value is of having those ongoing discussions. What it does is it creates trust. And when you create trust, those traditionally difficult conversations aren't as difficult. And there are no surprises when you do the review. Have you found that the most effective managers sort of intentionally more positive, that they're giving people much more positive feedback, even praise rather than disproportionately focusing on people's weaknesses, which is sort of, unfortunately, characterizes a lot of managers. Yeah, I think that um, traditionally managers have, probably because of it's our human nature, they become experts on on the weaknesses of the people they manage. Maybe with good intent, let's be optimistic and say that it was with good intent that they're trying to help the person correct some weaknesses. But unfortunately, it's not effective, and it just kind of grinds people down. And managers have to be conscientious, thinking about what went right and giving people recognition for it. It's got to be real productive behavior, not it can't be phony praise, but it's got to be praise that's authentic and based in performance and more continuous. And that's got to be in abundance. If people are in the right jobs and they're highly productive, they should be recognized for that in a way that's useful to them. So part of that involves, you know, understanding the individual and how they like to be recognized as well. So if I'm going to give you critical feedback, is there any science to show that there is a number of more positive pieces of feedback that I can give you that would make the more critical feedback sound caring and supportive as opposed to Jim is always picking on me? Well, it's kind of in line with that earlier finding, that four to one earlier finding. So a lot of managers might think, well, I need to balance out the negative and the positive. It's really much more than a balance. You've got to have at least four times the positive feed because the negative will sting that much. And if you do the four to one, then you're going to have some trust built up and the negative doesn't sting as much because they know that, that you're in it for their best interest. So a lot of that, though, has to do with getting those ongoing conversations right. If you're actually in touch with somebody, you know the context of the work they're going through. It'll make you better as a manager, make your company better as well. And it'll give you some insights that feel credible to the individual when you're giving them feedback and discussing their performance with them because they'll know that you're in their world, right? If you just have the annual review, you're not really in their world. So anything you say is going to lack credibility, Even if you make some accurate observations, and you're unlikely to, by the way, if it's an annual review. And that's one of the reasons that the annual review has gotten a bad rap. It wasn't really the annual review as much as it was the stuff that didn't happen before the annual review. (laughs) So is there a stigma? Maybe that's not the best word to describe it. But do you think that there's still many managers out there in the workforce that don't really believe that they need to be a caring, supportive, and even positive boss? That there's a a number of people that think they don't need to? Yeah. So that's not what we're here to do. You know, it's like... Yeah, I think we still have to turn a corner there for many. So, uh, yeah, I think there are going to be managers out there, probably a lot of them, that will think, just get the work done. Exactly. Your job is here to get the work done. And while there's 
truth to that, how you do that effectively isn't by command and control anymore. And it wasn't the most effective way ever, but people kind of put up with it in the past because they thought that's part of what work should be. I think there's still a corner to turn there. So I think this kind of change in culture that we're talking about has to start with leadership, having the right expectations of managers, having a culture that moves from boss to coach is going to move them both in the right direction in terms of attracting the newer workforce, but also reaching higher levels of performance. I think uh, it's going to take some time, but it starts with leadership setting the expectation about what they want their culture to be. And then hiring people into management roles who exhibit them so that other people can model those, right? Exactly. Is that another way for it to accelerate? Yeah. So you've got to have the right hiring process and the right development process, both. One of the things that when I was reading your book, you and I have over several years talked about this idea of managers migrating into the role of coach. And then I thought back to the Great Recession, where many organizations actually made their managers take on double duty. They let people go or they didn't hire more people. You know, they were running really lean. And so what they ended up doing was requiring the manager to not just manage, but to be an individual contributor. So I'm wondering if you think that most companies have unwound this. My real question is whether you think most managers have enough time in their day to coach their employees. Yeah, we actually have, just so people kind of think about where we're headed with some of this research. We have a whole series of studies going on this year on the manager experience, and one of them involves manager time use, where we'll actually be looking at how they use their time and what the top managers do differently from others in terms of that time use. We know a lot about that already, but, you know, One of the important points about those ongoing conversations is that they should make everyone's jobs more efficient. It might seem like we're adding things on, right? They might be doing some individual contributor work. In addition to being a manager, everybody's busy. There's a lot of demands on manager. I would argue that the role of manager is more complex than it's ever been. But having those conversations should increase the efficiency of the team because you understand the context that everybody's dealing with and consider the time waste when you don't have that conversation and you have to undo something or you find out somebody wasted a bunch of time doing something that didn't align with where the organization was headed or they just weren't aware of a change that had been made in terms of the organization's direction. So if you consider the time waste of not having those conversations and consider the efficiency with that comes with them, I would argue that having the conversations, while it seems like you're adding something on, actually reduces the load on the manager. But do you think that in your work in going into organizations, do you hear from managers say, hey, I'd do a much better job of coaching if they gave me any time to do it? Is that a real hurdle any longer? Or I've Yeah, I've certainly heard that. Give me time to do it. So there's that. And I think that one of the things we try to point out also in this recent book is that the manager's experience themselves is really one of the most important factors to consider if you're trying to develop those. So managers actually have more stress and less clear expectations than the people they manage directly, which was surprising to me. So while there are things that come with managing that are positives like autonomy, managers are experiencing more stress in many ways, lower well-being, And again, importantly, less clear expectations. So there's a lot of changes coming at people. I could certainly see how a manager would say, well, I just don't have time. But then I think if they take a step back and think about what they'll gain from having those conversations with people and even just try it out. So in some of the courses we teach, we have managers actually try out these conversations and there's some real light bulbs that go on. Well, we have a big senior leader and HR audience. And so I guess I'm sort of 
really sort of trying to drill down on what's the reorientation. And you've just introduced something interesting, which is that managers are feeling more oppressed and more stressed. And so it would be logical to say, hey, you know, I'm so fully loaded right now that taking time to coach my people is something I'd love to do, but I just don't have time to do. So if you're saying, and as you do say and assert repeatedly, that managers need to be coaching, what would you advise senior managers and HR people who have the ability to sort of reconstruct what the responsibilities of their managers are? Well, I would think about everything they're involved in, how it aligns with what your purpose and your strategy is as an organization, but that'd be kind of a starting point. But then I would also get them the right tools and ongoing curriculum to make their jobs easier from a coaching standpoint to help them know that the investment is worth it. In many cases, these managers need great managers themselves. And so the coaching has to go throughout all layers of management, not just expecting frontline managers to do all of that. So that finding about, you know, the manager's experience is a big one because it means that at all levels, we need to increase the level of coaching. To do that, you've got to have outstanding, well-thought-out base curriculum where people have a foundation in understanding human nature and how you manage people effectively, how they're likely to respond effectively to that leadership. And then second, ongoing tools and curriculum that support that base knowledge. And I would argue that the base knowledge, the starting point in the base knowledge needs to be strengths-based because people develop most efficiently in the context of who they are already. They've got to understand who they are. Then those new skills they need to learn, when we all have them, can be learned much more effectively. So the base of that is to make their jobs easier, the people part of their jobs easier by creating some shortcuts And one shortcut is to start building a strengths-based culture and have strengths as the basis of your curriculum. That doesn't mean avoid weaknesses. It means make sure people understand both their strengths and their weaknesses, but uh, it makes them more efficient in terms of what they do and how they develop individually. Thank you. I want to change gears. This is interesting. Somebody tweeted me this just a few weeks ago, and I immediately thought of you because I was reading your book at the same time. He said that he was at an all-company manager meeting, and while everyone was you know, basically socializing and catching up with one another, his organization's chief financial officer came over and said, you know, all I see is the money spent for all these people to be standing around. And in light of your findings on the importance of social connections at work, something we haven't Mm -hmm. talked about yet, what advice would you give to the CFO? Well, we don't just kind of become cogs and non-human when we enter a workplace. Collaboration is really essential to one outcome that I think all organizations are looking for now, and that's to build an agile culture. You've got to have some collaboration. People collaborate with people they know and like. It's just a fact. And so to encourage collaboration means you're going to get a payoff later. So these people that are doing that socializing and catching up with one another are building some connections and bonds that will make them you know, more likely to rely on each other in the workplace, you know, and when they're getting work. And, and who knows, maybe they're actually, when they're socializing and catching up, actually getting work done in those conversations. They might be, mm-hmm. you know, having close connections at work with others means your opportunity to be creative and even to vent sometimes when you need to is there. 
And it just opens up the environment to be more human, which means that the environment will then be more efficient because we're leveraging human nature as opposed to fighting against it and trying to expect people to just do the work per se. How do you earn an MBA in this country or any country and come out of it thinking that people have to be productive 100% of the time, otherwise you're getting taken advantage of, which is sort of what this CFO's vocation was. Yeah, and I think people that deal with numbers, there might be some natural kind of inclinations toward that. I think that even though you like in manufacturing, we see a little bit lower engagement on average, we've seen organizations that'll flip that around and, and be at the top of our database. You know, there's kind of a natural mindset that comes with engineering and I think the same could be said for some financial officers who see the spreadsheets mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and think about how the numbers add up. Well, we can put numbers on people, too, and how they think and uh, how engaged they are and what their intentions are and what their overall well-being is. And so that's another source of numeracy that I think organizations can leverage and many have leveraged. I want to make sure we have time to talk. You've created what, Gallup's well-being study. How long ago? When did you start that? Well, we started our world poll in about 2005. Gallup had been doing a lot of well-being research prior to that. And we published our book on well-being in 2010. So at a time when there seems to be so few boundaries between our work lives and our personal lives, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, and also at a time where we see spikes in depression and anxiety and mental well-being, I'm really interested in hearing what you've discovered in terms of the big takeaways, like what's true, what's not true, and give us some guidance on how managers can meaningfully create greater employee well-being. You mentioned earlier about we're being expected to be on at all hours and responding to emails and texts after dinner and late nights and get on quick calls when we're already home. And is that taking a toll or is it not taking a toll? What's your insight? Our evidence would suggest that it's taking a toll if you don't have the right overall environment around the individual, in particular, the right manager. So I think you've just hit on one of the increased complexities in managing. We've got more remote. We've got this blending of work and life. We've got more matrix environments, more diversity than ever before. So the tone is set by the manager. And managers that manage in this kind of setting have to be in touch with people. So I'd say the first thing to a manager is the base is get to know them. Get to know them as an individual, what their aspirations and goals are. If you want to improve their well-being, you've got to start with the basic kind of work-related elements, clear expectations, materials, doing what they do best, recognition, development. When you get those basic areas right, get to know them as an individual so they know you really care about where they're headed. If you get those basics right, what you've done is you've built trust. And when you build trust, then you've opened the door to help them improve their lives in other ways. I don't know how many people have seen the benefits that their organization might offer to them and then just kind of forget that they even exist. You know, they might be really well-intended benefits. But if you have a manager who's thinking with you about your own situation, they can help you connect to those benefits more quickly and the different opportunities that there are in the organization to improve your life. The space here is really wide open in terms of improving well-being. If people start with the basics first so that people know that they're in it for their best interest. Otherwise, people might think it's kind of weird that you're asking me about my overall life, right? This is work. Well, probably easier now because we see work and life is blended. There's just more opportunity to talk with people about both sides of that. And we found there are five elements that managers can help individuals improve on, starting with uh, their career or the purpose they're connected to, their social well-being, 
which that can be fulfilled in many ways at work. We talked about that a little bit ago about the importance of that. Mm-hmm. Their financial well-being. So whether they are taking advantage of the resources that are available to them in the organization to reduce their daily stress and increase their long-term security. Most organizations have really good offerings there. It's a matter of, you know, the manager might help them know where to go. That might be one thing. They might also have little study groups where people are sharing the ideas about what works best for them. So there's all kinds of options there. Physical well-being. We know healthcare costs are continuing to be problematic in organizations. To get physical well-being right, we've got to think about it individually, but also think about how it's impacted by those other elements of well-being as well, that it's not just a one dimension, it's all of them together. And most organizations now have different things that they offer that employees can take advantage of from a physical well-being standpoint. And then there's uh, community well-being. How do we connect our work to the broader community? And so a lot of organizations have those opportunities as well. But how do you connect an individual to something they can do related to the community that's unique to them and their own passions and interests and maybe even start something new? But um, those are the five. And I think that managers are in the perfect position to activate all five of those if they start with the basic engagement elements, build some trust. And then, like I said, the door's wide open. What do you think about establishing time boundaries? So sort of unless we're in crunch mode or some sort of an emergency, implying to employees, this is when your day ends. So do you like sunset hours, you know, no emails after seven or any of that? I think it's so individual that when you start putting general boundaries like that, it might be good for some people, but not others. What about the person who wants to work a little bit, maybe a couple of hours on Sunday to get prepared for Monday? Mm-hmm. Are you going to tell them they can't work on the weekends because that's going to reduce their stress? But what about a boss who sends me emails on Sunday? Then, you know, if he's that or she's that person and I'm getting emails at 10 o'clock on a Sunday, what's to keep me from feeling like I'm now I got to give my Sunday up to respond to all of this? Obligated. Yes, that's a good point. That's also related to the individual. So there's some individuals that might actually want that attention and activity and there are others that may not. So that's where I think having that discussion with each person and thinking with them about, you know, here are the outcomes that you're responsible for in your work. Here's your job responsibilities. Let's think about how we get there in a way that's best for you, given your situation. And that does open the door for thinking with them about how work fits into the rest of their life. I don't think of it as work-life balance as it is just understanding that all those well-being elements need to be thought about. And it might seem complex to think, well, an organization's got to build a culture where we have all this individualization But when you have the right managers in place, they can take care of that for you, and they want to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it isn't as much of an uphill thing as people might think. And there are going to be times when there's some accountability. Everybody's got to have accountability in their role, so you've got to have the responsibilities, the accountability. But when you're having those ongoing conversations, I don't know about anybody else, but in my work environment, when there's all kinds of accommodations you make for people, but when you know that they're going to be high performing and they're in it for the right reason, it's not that hard to make the accommodations. I've got a colleague who goes across the world to spend time with her parents because they're at that stage in their life and she works all the time, but you know more than anybody would expect her to. But that's the kind of accommodation we should make for somebody because you already know they're in it for the right reason. Well, I mean, I think you make a really great point that it's very nuanced. And so there is no one policy that an organization can have. But I think 
all of this is going to reflect in the engagement numbers too, right? So mm-hmm. if I'm a manager who really doesn't really concern myself about what your individual needs are, ultimately that's going to show up in the metrics, right? So the balance is in the report card too. That's right. When we think about performance management, we think about three components. There's the setting clear expectations and that there's a collaborative component to that. The ongoing conversations, we've talked quite a bit about that today. And then there's an accountability piece to it. You've got to have all three. And when you have all three, then everything feels a lot more credible because you've got some kind of gauge on whether they're getting their work done. You've got their involvement in setting goals that are aligned with the organization and that are meaningful to them. And then you you have a lot of conversations with them about how to get there. Terrific. Before I let you go, Jim, I'd like to turn the stage over to you and ask if there are any other insights from It's the Manager, your new book, that we haven't yet discussed or that you'd especially like to emphasize as we close out the podcast. Mark, I think we've kind of talked about one thing I was was thinking about, which was the, the most surprising thing to me in all this research was how much we have to put concerted effort into making the manager's own experience right, that we put a lot on managers. And when we say it's the manager, it's also the manager of the managers. And so that that's a big one. I, th- I think the other thing that we haven't really talked much about that I'd point to is we've done quite a bit of research over the last year on diversity and inclusion. It's been a pretty hot topic out there. Mm-hmm. And so we're able to find, if you want to really get to a culture of high inclusion and belonging, then there are three base elements that really overlap with some of the things we've been talking about. One is, does everybody feel they're treated with respect? We found that if you look at the percentage of people who disagree or strongly disagree with that, we did this survey asking people about different forms of discrimination and harassment, and we found that the people who disagreed or strongly disagreed, they're treated with respect. About 90% of them reported at least one form of discrimination or harassment mm. in the workplace. Mm. So that's that's an indicator right there. Of course, the goal is to get to people given a strongly agree to being treated with respect. The second was, am I known for my strengths? So uh, do people around you know the workplace know me based on my overall strengths, whether that's something as explicit as some labels we put on a, our Clifton Strengths Assessment or whether it's something else they would own as a strength. Maybe it's their culture, cultural background, but do you know me for how I want to be represented in terms of my strengths? And then the third element was, if there is an issue of ethics and integrity that arises, will the organization do what is right? That's another one, and that kind of relates back to whether there is a system in place so that there's a protocol that people can follow if something happens, but then also what actually does happen in response to that. Are things laughed off, or are they actually taken seriously and somebody does something about it? So those are three areas we found there, but it kind of comes back, though, to the conduit for all of that is the manager, because the manager can understand the situation and do what's right elevate an issue that needs to be elevated. They can also keep something from getting inflamed in the organization that you know, may have been unintentional that happened. So it does come back to the manager across all these areas we're talking about, including the DNI area. So to pin you down, it really is about the manager, isn't it? <laughs> it's the manager. You know, Jim, we all read, I can't tell you the number of articles I read that start off, according to Gallup research, according to Gallup studies, and it's a treat for all of us, my entire audience and me included, just to hear from you personally and directly and have you articulate all of this insight and wisdom you have. So on behalf of everyone, thank you so very much for joining us again. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's great. Great being with 
with you again. And best of success to you. The name of the book is It's the Manager, Jim Clifton and Mr. Jim Harder. Thank you so very much. Thank you. As we close out the show, and just in case some of you may have noticed, I want to acknowledge that this is the first time we didn't feature the Heartbeat Round because there was just so much great content in Jim Harder's new book. And because we did the Heartbeat Round with him only a few months back, I decided to leave this segment out. I will surely have it back for our next guest and episode, I promise. And as always, I want to thank my mighty team, webmaster Randy Yant, and my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. And I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Thank you.